welcome to the Business of Learning, the Learning Leaders Podcast from TrainingIndustry.com. Hello, and welcome to the Business of Learning, the Learning Leaders Podcast from TrainingIndustry.com. I'm Taryn Aish, Managing Editor of Digital Content here at Training Industry. And I'm Sarah Gallo, Associate Editor at Training Industry. Before we begin, I would first like to say that this episode of the Business of Learning is sponsored by the Certified Professional in Training Management Program. Hi, I'm Brandy, and I'm the Learning Program Administrator for the Certified Professional in Training Management Program. The CPTM program was designed to convey the essential competencies you need to manage a training organization. And when you become a CPTM, you gain access to alumni resources like monthly peer roundtables and a full registration to the Training Industry Conference and Expo. If you start today, you can earn the CPTM credential in as little as two months. To learn more, visit cptm.trainingindustry.com. Developing a training program that has the power to improve business results is difficult in its own right, but developing a global training program that has the power to improve business results uh, across regions presents a whole new set of challenges for learning leaders, such as language barriers, cultural differences, and even time zone differences. So how can learning leaders navigate these challenges and develop and implement a successful global training program? Today, we're speaking with two experts to find out. Jacqueline Bavarashu, a certified professional in training management, is a learning and development director at KPMG. And Jonathan Fear is the vice president of Coupa University at Coupa Software. Jacqueline and Jonathan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. And to get things started today, why don't you go ahead and tell us how you define cultural intelligence? What are some common traits of culturally intelligent leaders? Jacqueline, let's start with you. All right. Um, So I did look up that term on Google, I will say, (laughs) and it says that uh, cultural intelligence can be defined as the capability to relate and work effectively across cultures. So I'd say I I agree with that very simple definition. But I'd also define that on an individual level, cultural intelligence to me is the ability to reflect with self-honesty and become self-aware. And that ability is crucial in leaders as leaders are really the ones who set the cultural tone of an organization. Definitely. And Jonathan, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I agree completely with Jacqueline. And, you know, to add to it a little bit, you know, EQ is very, very similar to CQ or emotional intelligence related to cultural intelligence. And I think the, the primary difference there is that, you know, many folks are used to hearing the term uh, emotional intelligence, and that really deals at the individual level, whereas with cultural intelligence, what we're really trying to do is tease out uh, the underlying either cultures and or influences that may affect that person's behavior. And so I think the common traits of people who uh, really reflect a strong cultural intelligence, you know, are those that uh, are observant, they're empathetic, They have a strong intelligence. I mean, it really just boils down to curiosity and common sense. Uh, You know, the the you can refer to a lot of folks that will say that it's the three traits of cognitive, physical, and emotional or motivational uh, that allows them to blend in an unfamiliar context. But uh, you know, I think it's just a matter of being empathetic uh, and and truly understanding the needs of that particular culture or the expectations of that culture to be able to mimic, you know, the dress, the body language, the language uh, to, to understand the cultural influences that may motivate them. 
Great. Uh, so with that in mind, do you think um, it's maybe more important now than ever before that organizations uh, develop this awareness and this cultural intelligence in their employees and, and what makes today's corporate environment um, makes that uh, type of intelligence so important? Uh, Jonathan, why don't, why don't we start with you since you're just talking? Yeah, thanks. And I, it, it's, it's not just for the employees, it's both for the internal and external customers as well. And so I, I think it's essential for any organization to succeed in a global market to have some sort of cultural intelligence or intelligence program. Uh, you know, internally, you know, if you look at just the influence of people between different floors within a single building, you know, it doesn't even have to be across geographies necessarily, but, you know, if the sales force can't talk to the engineers and marketing doesn't understand the services team and, you know, departments, offices, geographical regions, each has their own interpretation, if you will, of the company culture with its own manners or histories, you know, that can confuse folks who are not familiar with that. Uh, and, that is unless somebody has a higher cultural intelligence. It's something that I think accelerates the speed of communication, ultimately the speed of business, is if you are considering the other person's expectations, you might change the way that, say, an email could cause unnecessary time delays or anxiety because you're not aware of how an email might be read in uh, Japan that was sent from California and or an email might be read from uh, Germany that was sent from California. And so those are those are important aspects to just understand that the speed of business and the global nature of, of our economy, uh, it's just important to appreciate those differences. Jacqueline, anything to add? Yeah, I would say, you know, um, the differences that we see and that we hear um, those, those things, most people I feel get a sense as to, you know, I need to be aware of what this person may expect from me. Um, and I think also that, you know, in people who are culturally intelligent, you know, these are kind of people who have a self-discipline, a level of self-discipline that they can listen fully. Um, they can address their colleagues with respect and give each other the space to express themselves, ideas, concerns, because we may be born in different countries and have very different habits and that all is to be very respected, but essentially we're all human. And so deep down, we're all really quite the same. And I've learned that quite a bit um, working with different cultures in a large organization. You use a personal story, um, and oftentimes people are going to connect to you immediately and that, that just drops any um, barriers straight away and, and makes people feel comfortable. So I would, I would say some of those aspects of being culturally intelligent are just being human. Definitely. I, I really do agree that stories can connect people across cultures and backgrounds for sure. And going off of that, we know that cultural intelligence is such a vast subject area, and there's a lot of ways training managers can approach the subject, but what specific topic areas do you think they should focus on in their own cross-cultural training programs? Uh, so you want me to kick off on that one? Um, sure, you can go ahead. Okay, so uh, I think with cultural programs, you're going to take something broadly, 
it really begins with a company's values um, and underpinning those values is integrity. So the topics ought then to address, you know, how a company gets its work done within that frame. You know, uh, what is the common thread? What's the heartbeat of a cross-cultural program so that they can start to contextualize it locally? And a company can use that spread or, or that thread to then sprout off concepts into specific local business practices, technologies to use, um, some awareness building of products and services in certain regions, other particular services that can be used to help communicate to the market. For example, you know, using qualified and accurate social media posts about what your company can do for the marketplace. Um, but I think it's finding that that underbelly or that thread that ties the company together and the values and integrity is very, very central to that. Yeah. And Jonathan, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think awareness is where you have to begin with a cultural training program. So uh, you have to first raise awareness. You have to address things like a conscious bias, go into areas of empathy, awareness and openness and all of that while providing some strong situational examples that are going to work within your uh, particular environment. And so, you know, to, to tie back to what Jacqueline was saying earlier, you know, think about the stories that she uses to help broach those topics and begin to bind people together. I mean, we want to celebrate the similarities that we have. Uh, and similarly, within values, and let's take Coupa as an example, is that at Coupa, we have three core values. That is our cultural uh, binding force. That is what ties us all together. And we know that the culture is going to evolve and grow as we, as we add people into the organization, both organically as well as uh, through acquisition. And, and the reality is, is that everybody has a role to play in the positive addition of that culture. We have a phrase at Coupa that says that none of us is as smart of all, as all of us. Uh, and so by focusing on those core values, just as Jacqueline was saying, we can celebrate those similarities and say that this is something that culturally we are all part of and then have conversations around the differences and how to celebrate those differences as well. Uh, you know, one thing that we do as well, just as a best practice, if you will, is that for any of our learning and development programs or workshops that we host, uh, we are always looking to include the cross-pollination of regions, departments, and roles, because we don't necessarily want groupthink in any of these workshops. We want to hear differences of opinion. We want to hear different perspectives, different cultural influences to make sure that uh, we are spreading the word and raising awareness either directly or indirectly uh, through that type of activity. And just to touch on one of the points that you raised earlier as well, um, Jonathan, is, you know, around what are the nuances of that culture that they appreciate? Um, you know, language being one of them, but I was trying to think of it from being a human being. Um, what are our senses? We all have, you know, sight, sound, touch, taste, and smell. And we typically use um, sight, sound, and touch in many of our learning programs, regardless of where we are. But imagine taking a cross-cultural program and adding in taste and smell. And especially if you're doing, you know, live training events or live cultural programs and people being able to explore 
their full senses because they're learning something about the other culture that might not be directly related to the content, but in some way you can start to weave it in and it becomes much more of an experience. That's so interesting. The idea that exper- experiential learning, we can take that into um, this, this area of training and, and really provide that kind of immersion into another culture. I, I love that. Um, so we know that uh, localization is critical for the success of global training programs. Um, could you talk about, uh, well, first of all, what localization is and then uh, what that process looks like for uh, learning leaders? Uh, you know, I wouldn't even necessarily call it a, a local localizing a training program, but it's it's rather developing a global training initiative. And now, uh, Coupa, we are a global organization. Uh, we are lucky enough that English is used as a standard across the globe. Uh, so what we try and do is rather than necessarily localize the language that it's delivered in, but rather work with cross-functional teams to contribute to the overall effort because we were talking just a minute ago about situational examples. Uh, We need to make sure that those examples resonate across the globe. Uh, The the things that we're seeing here in California are absolutely different than what is seen in our Uppsala office in Sweden or our Pune office in India. And so understanding what type of individual stories and or events uh, are, are strong examples to help communicate what it is we're, we're looking at communicating. I think that's really critical. And then um, more importantly is, or equally as important, is we always ask for local leadership, not only to participate in the development, uh, but the execution of the program. So when we're looking at a global learning initiative, we wanna make sure that local leadership is present Uh, not only during the construction of the course material uh, and or workshop, but rather they are an active participant, if not a presenter, or we can bring in additional uh, people from that region to help present. Uh, What we really want to do is ensure that the delivery of it doesn't always come from a single central organization, but rather the entire Koopa village, the entire globe has contributed to this single activity. So we're not necessarily localizing by language, but we're absolutely localizing by region, by department, by culture. And when I say department, uh, you know, in in some cases, you know, when you look at uh, a strong cultural uh, intelligence, it's going to be important to understand what a developer might be looking for in class versus somebody that's looking uh, through the sales lens or looking through a marketing lens. And so when we look at developing an overall or localizing, if you will, a training initiative, it's more about developing a global learning initiative. Yeah, and I would agree, you know, and you touched on leadership there. Um, you know, if we assume that we're taking an existing global program that needs to be customised for a range of local audiences, that role of a central L&D governance body is so key. Uh, we've learned many lessons from, you know, not having that in place before um, in organisations where I have worked. Um, So this governance team, you know, they will ensure that the learning and performance outcomes remain consistent across the locations, even though they're going to take on different and unique contextualizations. And some of that contextualization might include the look and feel, the leadership champions, to Jonathan's point, uh, the language, to Jonathan's point, again, imagery, certain course elements and content for customization. 
And that governance body should really provide specific guidance on learning outcomes because that's their professional capability. That's what they were, um, that, that's what they built experience in or, or went to, to university to get. And in order to ensure the integrity of that instructional design and, and the design standards around format, um, you want to have a treatment and a modality that matches the local needs. And, you know, that's that professional learning advisory that every company needs today more than ever because everyone wants to scale and how you're going to get learner feedback. You know, what level is it? One, two, three, even four? Um, what kind of completion recognition will they be awarded the learners? Are they going to get a credit, a certification, a healthy benchmarking against some of their peers or transparency with leadership, especially because people want to be recognized in their career? Um, and last but not least, how do you report the, the success of that program to those people who invested the funds, the leaders? Again, going back to why did it even come up in the first place? And not to over, overlook the importance of governance to play this role of you know what is the best time and method to deploy this program because if you think about it a lot of companies have got other things going on time pressures like quarter end financial close holidays um, that are in conflict and you know being localized doesn't just mean that it should be delivered through a separate channel and I think in, in a con, on the contrary, it's essential that a minimum number of access points or interfaces are used for learning today. So finding a way to weave a local course into an existing population's learning journey that is motivating, that is meaningful, it's going to help justify delivering it in the first place and at the same time, not run the risk of breaking the LMS or um, having it fall flat. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, governance is, plays a big, big role in, in a global program. Yeah, and I think you brought up a, a couple of interesting points there. I mean, related to uh, the learner feedback and for that matter, even stakeholder feedback. I mean, one of the things that, uh, that we all as learning professionals need to keep top of mind is that we can't be afraid to fail. I mean, it, you know, as we roll these out, we're not going to get it right the first time. We need to pilot and iterate and be open to change. Uh, that's one of the biggest things that I see as you look to uh, go global is that you have to be open to, yes, your instructional designers put this together in a specific way, but the reality is that this particular way that it's being presented doesn't necessarily resonate in another area of the world or in another geography. Uh, so I think that that's something that's that's very very important, and and there's a, there's another assumption that I even made, you know, as we were sitting here talking, which is. Uh, you know, to ensure that it's not only the modality, as Jacqueline was saying, but that the timing works as well. I mean, we can't always do training on our local time. Uh, we have to be very, very cognizant of if we're doing web-based uh, delivery, for example, uh, we are setting up multiple times all throughout the globe to make sure that, yes, we are staying up at midnight to deliver this material versus, uh, you know, having somebody else do so. Uh, and, and more often than not for, well, actually 100% of the time for instructor-led courses, but we are going to go out and have, you know, feet on the ground in, in their area to ensure that, you know, it's, it's as easy a learning process as possible. We're not asking them to uproot themselves from family, friends, or role any more than they have to, or we will do that. 
to, to help their learning initiative as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, Jonathan, I know you said uh, that you um, your audience is all English speaking. Um, so I'm wondering, um, Jacqueline, if you could talk to any uh, issues or processes that you've used um, or come across to manage the translation process for training around the globe or or Jonathan, even if um, if you've faced any kind of um, translation, for lack of a better word, issues when it comes to just, you know, different dialects of English, um, different spellings, different, you know, idioms, things like that, if, uh, if y'all could talk to that. Um. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I've worked in a couple of large organizations, and, and lucky for us, we had the internal translation services, um, or else vendors that could do that kind of um, work for us. So, analyze and then determine the uh, translation requirement to go with it. But if, if the piece is purely digital, then a good piece of learning software can often provide translation captioning for videos. Um, but at the very minimum, if anything is, is going into a learning space, um, a translated transcript is a minimum for accessibility compliance. Um, so that's just something that's a given. It, it, it doesn't matter what formats it in. Uh, someone needs to be able to read in their own language um, and even particularly if they have a disability. But let's not forget either about visual language, you know, conveyed by graphics. And I think that came up a few times earlier in the conversation. Um, the consideration that needs to be made around colour, the shape, certain graphics, um, needed when you need to meet commercial or legal and regulatory requirements across global business. Those are important and that kind of help can often come from internal marketing and communications and legal teams as well as um, some companies are now acquiring or hiring resources who are really talented in digital design um, who can understand the user experience and they, they get trained in that sort of things. So they know what colour matches with um, you know, what local audience, and that can be part of translation too. And it's definitely the part, the whole process of design, development, delivery of custom content needs to have a, a, a lens of translation on it. And I'd say from, from my end, yes, you know, the, the vast majority of all the materials that we're delivering internally is all English. Uh, but that said, you know, there are those translation issues or, or definition issues, if you will. And so, you know, how do we approach those differences as we come up, come across them? I mean, one of the things is, you know, it goes back to the basics of cultural intelligence in the sense of you, you almost have to assume that everybody is coming from a position of positive intention. Uh, and so we're not looking in any of our courses that we're teaching to, to preach, right? It's a discussion. It is a workshop. It's an opportunity to be uh, authentic and share some respectful authenticity. And so, you know, we, we have come across challenges as, as we've some, seen delivery of some of the courses. I mean, you look at, uh, and I used the term before, Koopa Village, and that's what we use to define who we are organizationally. And we have this concept of is, is it of it takes a village where everybody has a role to play in the overall success of our organization. Uh, what's interesting is you think that actually that that creation of that metaphor was 
was done with the absolute best of intention, where, where village meant something that was special to people. It was almost like a family, and everybody's working together, and we're trying to do something really neat here. Uh, whereas you go to certain geographies throughout the globe, you start talking about the Koopa village, uh, and village doesn't seem necessarily as something that is a a good thing necessarily, right? It could it could be a small town that lacks infrastructure that everybody is looking to get out of, uh, that lacks education, that lacks medical facilities, right? Uh, and so we we have to appreciate that. Oh my goodness, it's we we understand that that's where you're coming from. But now that we know that, let's talk about why we think village is more about how we can succeed together as a family. We've had really good success in that regard. So I think it's identifying. You know those those areas of differences or the differences in definition that are that are also key, and then appreciating the other the other uh, person's perspective. And if you think to what Stephanie was, or I'm sorry, what what um, Jacqueline was saying just a minute ago is that you know you think about the imagery that's presented in these L and D type of activities, and so anytime we are going to be on site at another location, we're always very cognizant. In fact, uh, you know, ahead of time, we're going to load up pictures of the local office or the local community, the local sports teams. Uh, so as we're developing a particular piece of learning content, yes, we're going to pop in a particular visual that ties to the story that we're trying to tell within the context of that particular slide. Uh, but we actually rotate those images based off of the particular region, department, geography, whatever that we might be going to. Yeah, learning how to manage those translation issues, I think, is definitely critical for the success of any global training program, really. Um, but what do you think are maybe some other common challenges that today's L&D leaders are facing when launching a global training program? Um, Jacqueline, do you want to start with this one? Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I think, and this is my humble opinion, it's absolutely essential for L&D leaders who want to scale learning to global audiences to become a trusted business partner and an advisor to their local business leaders and the learning teams within those um, BUs and manage the stakeholder differences or conflict of opinion um, as, a, as a matter of high priority because there's always going to be opinions and matters of local business importance that will require discussion and even escalation. And the latter um, may give rise to the need for, you know, the presence of a learning council. A lot of organisations don't have these bodies set up and it doesn't matter how large you are. It's often thinking about, you know, what is the flow of discussion and decision making that needs to take place and what bodies do we need set up to help support and navigate that discussion. Um, sometimes when an escalation cannot be resolved and there's ongoing stakeholder friction, that's when the company's senior most people need to get involved and that's usually the management committee of the company. Um, and that just ensures that everyone is having a say about scaling learning across the globe Everyone knows how much they have to invest. Everyone knows who has what role in, and what role they're playing. But essentially, it's ensuring that the corporate messaging and the outcomes remain that North Star of the program. And all mentioned early before about good governance, you know, letting the local leaders, if you have good governance, you can let the local leaders in those teams then make it their own 
and all the while you're keeping your North Star really shiny and bright, that those learning outcomes can support the business investment and the goal. So good governance ensures that that learning approach will be consistent. It'll use consistent design standards, feedback mechanisms, quality controls through these bodies, like a, a learning council or a management committee for escalation points and governance and, and consistency around operating processes and, and in particular reporting. How are you going to prove that that was a good investment? And Jonathan, um, what other challenges do you think L&D leaders may face when launching a global training program? Dan, I, I think first I want to highlight the comment that Jacqueline said related to everyone has a say, uh, because I think one of the primary problems that I've seen uh, in the business envir environment is having too central a focus, right? And this applies even at the baseline. You can't make assumptions about what the learner needs are. Uh, and then that multiplies or exponentially increases as you begin working through the globe. So yes, you've got to get other people involved. You have to make sure that there's some stakeholder uh, contribution, some buy-in and some interest in, in pushing this program out. It can't be a central person just coming in saying, you know, I know what's right here. Um, you know, I, and, I, and I think there is, it's easy for people to fall into bad habits as well. And so the second problem that I think I see uh, happening is, uh, you know, people really slipping back into their unconscious bias, right? I mean, you, when you're developing these programs, you have to have that curiosity. You have to have that openness, the empathy that we've talked about before, uh, because you can't have a uh, bias towards other cultures or traditions, right? You, you need to be able to embrace them and incorporate that into your overall strategy of delivery. Uh, so I think it, it, it boils down to, you know, folks are, if they're not being curious, they are absolutely going to fall into some pits, pitfalls because not one person or one group or one team is going to understand what's going to work through the rest of the globe. It's something that has to be done collaboratively, cross-functionally, right? You, you got to work together uh, as a cultural team to, to develop something that's really going to work well, in my opinion. I love that idea that curiosity can combat uh, the unconscious bias that we all sometimes experience. Um, so to wrap things up, uh, what advice do each of you have for L&D leaders who are developing and implementing a global training program, maybe for the first time in their careers? Uh, Jonathan, do you want to start? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I think the first is just get something done, right? Uh, I think we all suffer from that. I, I need to have it perfect nature. I mean, the, the thing is that uh, I, I heard an analogy earlier today, which I thought was wonderful. It's like waves on a beach in the sense of, you know, you just try something and then you try again and you try again and you're constantly moving forward. So, you know, don't get caught up in analysis, but rather just try things and be inclusive as, of others. Uh, going back to what I had talked about early on is you, you've got to celebrate the similarities, uh, bond over the similarities and celebrate the differences, right? There's just so many things that you can do to, to uh, put your arms around why having different views and perspectives on culture is a good thing as long as you have that uh, binding value system that's going to work together. You know, I, I think we just covered it as well, but it's also having that open mindset, building cross-functional teams, getting people together to do this and not developing things in a, in a vacuum. 
And then as you're developing that, ensuring that you've got, uh, that you're addressing the objectives from the leadership team, you're getting local leadership buy-in and guidance on the best ways to do things. Uh, and, and I would say, finally, is just don't be afraid of change. In fact, don't be afraid of cultural exchange or cultural exchange programs. Uh, we need to be able to make sure that people are able to put themselves in, a, in somebody else's shoes for a day. So, you know, that is one of the things that we really try and focus on at Coupa is to allow people to, as part of a training class, as I said before, uh, for every training class that we have, we try to have some cross-pollination. Yes, we're willing to make the investment to fly somebody from, you know, an office in Boston to Pune, uh, just so they can understand a little bit more the perspective of uh, the Bostonians, uh, you know, the, the, and then we, we in turn understand a little bit more about the Pune folks. And so, uh, you know, it's not always just intact departmental trainings or intact the geographic trainings that are our best, but really taking a close look at whether or not some cross-pollination is something that will also help, uh, you know, streamline the overall uh, cultural intelligence of your organization. I guess I would just say, um you know, do have a plan. Um, think about as a new leader, um, believe in yourself as the very first thing. Believe in yourself, believe in your capabilities, create a loose plan and then start building relationships. So um, oftentimes, you know, you build out a stakeholder map or something like that and you start to understand who is who and what are their pain points um, try to have conversations with them if you can. And then you start to get a, a sense as to what um, their needs are. Because, again, the, the word empathy has been spoken many, many times throughout this podcast. And that is the key um, to everything. Uh, empathy means you're a human being. And when we're dealing with people from other countries, it's our humanity that bonds us together and if you can respect and, and be kind and um, just be able to try to understand another person uh, you will be able to do whatever you need to do and then have a plan and take it one day at a time and if anything happens that doesn't go your way that's fine you know you just go back onto the path and continue um, make mistakes and admit to them it's one of the, the best things is showing humility. Um, everyone feels like they have the chance to breathe when you show humility because no one's expected to know everything. No one can know everything. Um, and I think if you, you're able to follow your plan and share it and get feedback as well, that gets people involved in the process. Um, so, you know, those are the kind of things that I would advise a new person chomping at the bits of a new program and put your creativity cap on because people are so busy today they want to be entertained they want to smile they want to be happy and this can be fun learning can be really fun uh, so I think I would end it on that note <laughs> 
That's some great advice. Thank you, Jacqueline, for that. And as we do know that today's digital business environment is allowing for greater connectivity with learners from all around the world, learning to develop and implement a successful global training program is so critical for the success of today's learning leaders. With that in mind, you can learn more about emerging L&D trends in our 2020 Trends Report, which is now available for download in the show notes. Jacqueline Bavarashu of KPMG and Jonathan Fear of Koopa Software. It was great speaking with you both today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And of course, you can find additional resources for developing and implementing a successful global training program in the show notes at trainingindustry.com slash trainingindustrypodcast. And if you're enjoying this podcast, we do encourage you to rate it and leave a review on your podcast app to help other learning leaders find us. We'll talk to you next year. If you have feedback about this episode or would like to suggest a topic for a future program, email us at info at or use the contact us page at trainingindustry.com. Thanks for listening to the Training Industry Podcast.